we are going to continue the series we've been doing on Sunday nights called The Drama of Redemption. And so we're looking at how the whole Bible really holds together on how to read the Bible Christianly, uh, that it really is a book about the Trinity, from the Trinity, uh, for us, for the glory of Christ ultimately, with Him as the centerpiece. And uh, we've talked about all different facets uh, of that. And tonight, I, uh, it'll be an abbreviated time, but I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk about it and hopefully help us in understanding the Bible in a way that would honor Christ. And so tonight we're going to talk about holidays, holidays and holy days in the Bible. If you've ever been to another culture, uh, if, you've ever, if you've ever been to another country uh, and you spend any time there at all, you find out quickly you need to know something about their holidays. Now that doesn't, not all of us are qualified because not all of, us, all of us have been to other countries. But everyone in this room has known someone in this country from another country. And as you get to know them, you realize rather quickly they need to kind of understand a thing or two about holidays in America and even how we Americanize the holidays that we do have. And there's all kinds of nuancing. And if you're going to fit in kind of anywhere, it's, it's mandatory you know something about how they view certain holidays. Uh, holidays are critical. They're crucial uh, in our culture, in every culture. Uh, adding to the mix, when they're tied to religious observance, it's even more complicated or more important that you know something about the holidays. Um, and it's no different in the Bible. You have to understand something. If you're going to understand the Old Testament... And you're going to understand the Old Testament to understand much of the New Testament. And so it's not an option uh, for a Christian. If you're going to understand much of the Old Testament, you have to understand a thing or two about holidays, and specifically religious holidays. And uh, I'm a realist. I'm not much of an optimist. And so I am pretty good with aiming pretty low. <laughs> just like when I've gone to other countries, I'm not trying to learn everything. I just want to learn enough to be able to get by. Uh, and when I meet someone who's new here, I don't want to try to teach them everything and all the nuances and ins and outs, but I want them to know enough to be able to get by, and the longer they're here, the better they can understand. And so even if you know next to nothing about the Old Testament, you know next to nothing about the holidays, maybe you know a lot about them, my goal is at least to give you a taste. Uh, I'm a realist again. Let's at least know a thing or two about Old Testament holidays and holy days so we can understand our New Testament better, so we can understand Christ better, so we can worship in a way that is fitting and appropriate. Okay? That's the plan, so I hope it's okay. Um, maybe afterward, offline, we can talk about, you know, some of the most bizarre ideas you've heard about holidays. Um, I've seen pictures of Santa Claus on a cross in another country, um, from another country, and that was not necessarily because that's how it's supposed to be, but that's their perception of American... Uh, of America exporting this thing we call Christmas. We, we have to understand a thing or two to understand what Christ can be even fulfilled. So what we're going to do is look at three festivals, uh, three festivals and one particular day in the Old Testament. And then I really hope we're going to see the connections to Christ and we can see his significance as we talk about who he is, what he's done, covering some of those basics. All of these have to do with God's faithfulness to his people, God's promises to his people. We're going to start with Passover. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Exodus. And I like to say the Bible is very Passover-centric. Okay, so if you want, if you want to start really low, low-lying fruit, um, at least understand something about Passover. 
and the Bible will make way more sense to you. Way more sense to you. It's kind of like learning a language. Uh, when I've studied other languages at times, uh, and the, the books, uh, the, the lexicons, the vocabulary words, what they try to do typically, if it's a good one, they try to give you uh, the most frequently occurring words. And you start there. There's no sense in learning all these obscure words that aren't going to be that relevant that might not ever come up. Learn those later. But the most frequently occurring words, learn those first. Well, when it comes to holidays, Passover. Know a thing or two about Passover. And it's almost like the Bible's going to come alive in a way that it hadn't before. Put negatively, how can we understand much of anything in the Bible if we don't understand something about Passover? So Exodus chapter 12, where God passes over the homes where blood is applied and he doesn't strike down the firstborn as he does to the Egyptians as an act of judgment upon them for their opposition to him and their opposition to his people. So Exodus chapter 12, we'll read a pretty good section there to know something about Passover. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I shall see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Then if you drop down to verse 26 with me, if you would, where it says, And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this sacri- what do you mean by the service you shall say it is the sacrifice of the lord's passover for he passed over the houses of the people of israel in egypt when he struck the egyptians but spared our houses 
And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, for the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to be the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Severe judgment, judgment from God. What's unique, God's people, Israel, are protected and He shows Himself to be a faithful, loyal God, a covenant-keeping God to them. And He tells them how to avoid His judgment. What we're not seeing here tonight is the fact that there's been opposition to God, opposition to God, opposition to God, opposition to His people. And so here God is going to deliver His people. We're going to see the exodus. And it's going to be His power on display. And He says, here's a way. Here's a way to escape my judgment. And indeed, that's exactly what happens at Passover. And as I said, the Bible is very Passover-centric. It's very, very hard to understand much of the Bible without understanding this, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, not to mention the specific work of Christ. Theologically, you would want to take note of the fact, among other things, that when this happens, this is something that everybody needs. This is not, well, God's people, Israel, are protected because they're inherently good people, and so God's just going to pass over just because. It's interesting that there is animal sacrifice. There is blood. There is, there is bloodshed. Uh, it's not that they're inherently better than everybody else because of who they are. They're not. They belong to God, and God says, here's the means by which you can avoid my judgment. There can be atonement, and so they, ends up, they end up being protected from God's wrath, and they're delivered, and then we have God's great redemptive deliverance in the Exodus. It's an annual observance, so it's to keep going on, and what's happening as they do this every year, and they keep remembering Passover, they keep remembering Passover, they keep remembering Passover, God delivered us. God delivered us. God was loyal to us as His people. God said, do this. We did it. And look, we were protected. God delivered His people. There is faithfulness. There is loyalty. We're not going to take the time to go through the passages, but in Deuteronomy chapter 16, you have the observance of this and how it's to go on and it's to go on and it's for God's fame and to remind the people that they, they themselves are not strong, they themselves are not powerful, that they needed this to happen for them. It's a memorial as we read. To remember, 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 remember. You get the idea that the people of God are not exempt from forgetting, forgetting, forgetting. And so built into the way God works, and we know it with communion, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. And we get back on the works righteousness treadmill. Works righteousness treadmill. Works righteousness treadmill. Forgetting, forgetting, forgetting. You're a great people. You were delivered. You have exodus. Why? Remember, remember, remember. Teach your children. 
Remember, remember. It's the Lord's Passover. Remember, remember, remember. You say, okay. God is good for giving this sort of thing. Not only for doing it initially, but for reminding the people that it's not about them and their efforting. It's about God and His sovereign grace and God and His working. Immediately following this, and we'll, we'll lump the two together or put the two together, would be the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, we can go ahead and read about that in Deuteronomy 16 if you want to go ahead and turn there. So associated with this, with Passover, you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, if you have Jewish friends, you know at least about these things in, in, in word. Um, whether they're committed to it or not, other than uh, tradition. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 16, Unleavened Bread, Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, I'm going to read verses 3 through I'll read 3 and 4 for the sake of time, and then we'll talk about a relationship that these things have to Christ. Deuteronomy 16, verse... And we could have gone to Deuteronomy 16, 1 and 2 to talk about the annual observance of Passover, but I'm going to go 16, 3 and 4 regarding unleavened bread. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, he calls it. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste that all the days of your life you may, here we go again, remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. Remember redemption. Remember redemption. Remember redemption. All the days of your life remember redemption. And as you had to go in haste, as you have this memorial, as you have this holiday, you're going to remember the reality of what God did and how He did it and how He called you to act as you have unleavened bread. So pretty simple um, and extra simple for us to think about. But when you think about the great deliverance and the great delivering work of God that took place there, He did the seemingly undoable for His people. I mean, it's one of the grandest events in in all of all of history. Passover, this great work. I know it's one of the grandest events of all of history in light of what we know about Christ. Talk about a great work. Now let's talk about the relationship to Christ. We didn't read this far in Exodus chapter twelve. But in Exodus twelve forty six, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Well, that that didn't seem very significant back when it was first stated. But then we go to the gospel accounts and we start putting the pieces together. Together, and in John chapter nineteen verse thirty six, not one of his bones will be broken. Oh. And that's not the first illusion or direct statement or connection. But it's those kinds of connections. And you go, he's the Passover lamb. He's most certainly the Passover lamb. Oh, and 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says he is our Passover. Christ, our Passover. And then that's tied to even Christian ethics. Well, you've got this grand event that really is the, one of the grandest in all of the Old Testament. And now you have the most grand event of all in human history, cosmically speaking, and it's Christ our Passover. 
And you see, I told you it was Christ, it was, uh, Christ over centric. That's going to be the statement of the day. Christ over centric. Somebody tweet that. <laughs> Passover centric. Because with that being central and the focus, and now Christ is central and he's the focus, he's the Passover lamb. It makes all the sense in the world. It makes all the sense in the world. If I know just something about that, that significant holiday, I can understand a lot more about who Christ is. Now, as we've talked on these Sunday nights, and if you haven't been with us, I'll just remind you and everyone else will say, do you have to remind us again? In Ephesians chapter 1, we keep going back there, we see God's plan of redemption reaching back into eternity past. So before the foundation of the world, it says... And then we have God's purposes talked about and redemption talked about where there will be the forgiveness of sins talked about and we have predestination talked about and how all of this is in, let's translate it like the Old Testament would, in Messiah. This is how this is going to happen. We say in Christ this is going to happen. And here we have this, this eternal plan of redemption. And you have the Father and the Son and the Spirit and how it's going to center upon Christ and He is central to all of it. Now, track with me here. Then we have all this Passover stuff in the Old Testament. So we have a plan pre-Genesis 1.1. Christ is central to the whole thing. And then in the Old Testament, we have all this Passover, 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 blood applied, redemption, and then we get to the New Testament and we see clearly Christ is our Passover lamb. Are, are, are you seeing the, um, significance of all of the Bible and how we might even read it? I hope you are. I hope you are. But it's not a plan B to have Christ be the Passover lamb. It, it, it's not an afterthought to have this be the case. So somebody's going to ask the question. I know someone will ask the question, whether in public or not, or I, so I'll ask the question. So when I read about the Passover, is it okay for me to think about Jesus? I think it's more than okay for you to think about Jesus. I think it's more than okay for you to think about Jesus because we have an eternal plan, a plan that was put together by the triune God before time ever began. And as it unfolds, it gets clearer and clearer to us. But we don't read the Bible like people who have a veil over their face, who are unregenerate. We don't read the Bible like that. The veil is taken away. We can understand these things better. And we say, God was unfolding His great drama of redemption. And it becomes clearer and clearer. But isn't it amazing how it all unfolded? Yeah, it's amazing how it all unfolded makes me want to read the Bible like I've never wanted to read the Bible before, like I've said before, about the Passover. It was planned. It was purposed. This is how it was going to be. And even our Bibles would talk about types and shadows. Substance belongs to Christ. You say, yeah, that's right. It's not like we're reading the Bible like somehow there are all these hidden meanings. These are rather explicit things. That we read about 
He's our Passover lamb. The eternal God has been planning this. It's not like the Trinity was, an inve was invented in Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. He's the eternal triune God working throughout history. Oh yes, as I've said time and time again, the incarnation is vital. He's spoken through His Son in these last days, culminating days, punctuated days. But the eternal Son didn't come into existence then. It was all planning, working, unfolding. It's good stuff. Really good stuff. I feel like I'm preaching. I guess that's, a, that's what I'm doing. And... Uh, it's exciting stuff. Well, let's move on. Let's move on to uh, number two. Another significant, significant one um, would be Pentecost. Passover is the big one that we're going to focus on tonight. But let's move on to Pentecost. Um, also associated with the Feast of First Fruits uh, and the Feast of Weeks. That's one of the things that becomes confusing in the uh, Old Testament with all the labels for things. But you've got Pentecost, Feast of First Fruits, Feast of Weeks. It comes at the end of the grain harvest, so it's a positive time. Also related to the Exodus, I told you that it, um, it's, in, it's worth learning something about Exodus and worth learning something about Passover, because as we learn about things like Pentecost, it's related. How about Deuteronomy 16? You want to go ahead and look at Deuteronomy 16, and then we'll go right to a connection to Christ. And you're already probably there in your mind. You're thinking, okay, Pentecost is Acts chapter 2. That's right. Good thinking. But before Acts chapter 2, this is an Old Testament feast. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 9. Let's pick it up there. You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. It's harvest. Verse 10. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a free will offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. Notice it's, it's God doing this, God providing. So you're going to give out of that. And then it says in verse 11, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. This is him doing this. This is exciting. This is a time of rejoicing. You and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. This is all about him and his fame and his greatness. Verse 12, you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. I told you that it was Exodus related. You remember through this, you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. What's the connection? Remember, you were a slave and God delivered you wonderfully, amazingly, miraculously. Not only that, not only did He, did he deliver you, He didn't deliver you to be in bondage somewhere else. He delivered you so that you might have Land where there's harvest so that you could be a real people. How could you be a real people without a real land? He delivered you so you could have this prosperity. And as you experience this prosperity, because He's given you this land, first fruits, you say, this is wonderful. This is rejoicing. We used to be slaves. And now we are free. And He's given us abundance. And He's given us blessing. This is extraordinary. This is exciting. This is no wonder they. This is a feast. This is a. This is a holiday. This is a time of rejoicing. Honor him because 
were remembering the Lord as the Redeemer. And apart from Him being the Redeemer, they would not have these things. You say, how do these things relate to Christ? Well, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it's Pentecost. What a coincidence. Well, according to Peter's preaching, it's not a coincidence. According to Jesus' working, it's not a coincidence that when He goes, it's Passover, and then we have Pentecost, 50 days later, and, and there He is, and you have the ascension. It's no coincidence at all. Time of rejoicing, a time of celebration, a time acknowledging God's provision, and actually, a time of acknowledging these things. In Acts chapter 2, verse 16, Peter says, This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This is what was uttered? You know, in Acts chapter 2, and the Spirit comes, and this amazing, extraordinary work of the Spirit, and you have people converted, and staggering to the mind. This is what Joel was talking about, Peter says. Well, what's interesting, when you look at Joel, Joel prophesies great desolation and, and, and everything is, there's famine and desolation and it's awful. And then, God works extraordinarily, abundantly. And if we're connecting the dots... There was great desolation. And things were awful and things were bad. Think about what just happened. Think about, think about what had been happening among the people of God. And then, this extraordinary, unrivaled work of God with the pouring out of the Spirit of God, as Jesus said would happen, that He would have to go in order for this to happen. So we have ascension, we have resurrection, we have ascension, we have, in other words, let me be really profound, for those of you who, who paid a lot of money for a lot of education, we have to have Acts 1 before we have Acts 2. See? It's profound. Because of what Christ has done and because of His great work and punctuated with His ascending work so that He would send His Spirit, Peter's saying, this is what Joel was talking about. Amidst this, this total desolation, and what's interesting, they're not talking about farming. No doubt when you read Acts 1 and Acts 2, they're talking about spiritual realities. And he says, this is it. This is it. say, wow. According to plan. How about, am I pushing things too far if I say year after year after year after year after year celebrating Pentecost? That that was on purpose? And it was in, in anticipation that there would be a great harvest better than a physical harvest? I don't think I'm reading into the text anything, quite honestly. Anything more than Peter's reading into the text when he says, this is it. This is what we were anticipating. What was prefigured, foreshadowed. This is it. This is better. This is better. I read about Pentecost now in the Old Testament. I'm thinking about Jesus coming. 
Yep. I'm thinking about Peter, the inspired apostle, who will one day say, this is it. This is what we are waiting for. In anticipation, God provides in abundance, extraordinarily, magnificently. Yeah. He did with the pouring out of His Spirit like never before. Let's move on to tabernacles. Another feast or festival, the festival or the feast of tabernacles. This is one my kids would have liked. Um, tabernacles, uh, this is the feast of tents. Who do, who, what kid doesn't like a good tent, right? I mean, can you imagine telling your kids, we are going to hang out in the tent for the week. My kids would be going, all right. My kid, they set the tent up in the living room sometimes. And there's just something fun about being in the tent. And, and they would have been excited. And you would have had their attention. God isn't dumb in the way He gives us these things. But it wasn't just so you can have a good time and, you know, have a break from the house. Um, the Feast of Tabernacles would be a time, again, tied to the Exodus, tied to the Passover activities. And it's a time of remembering God providing even though... They weren't in the land, even though they were without, even though they were in transition. God delivered, God redeemed them from Egypt and from Egyptian slavery. And now He's going to take care of them, even though they haven't reached their destination. The Feast of Tabernacles. God never wanted them to forget that He was faithful, that He took care of them. They were not men and women of their own strength and power. They weren't self-made. He's the one that did it. Let's sample one text. How about Leviticus chapter 23? Leviticus 23, 42 and 43 would be a good sample. Um, as you're turning there, I'll read Deuteronomy 16, 14. Deuteronomy 16, 14 says, You shall rejoice in your feast. These aren't the kind of holy days where everybody sits around grumpy. Uh, this is not that. And sometimes we read the Old Testament and go, Man, what a drag. I think it'd be much better to think about seriously, at least gives you a better idea of you telling your kids, you know what? It's tent party time. That's what this is. And we're going to rejoice as it says. You shall rejoice in your feast. We're going to have a huge party and we're going to have a great time celebrating Yahweh. Our great God, the one true God who delivers, He delivered us and gave us redemption. Let's remember that. And even when things didn't look like we'd arrived yet, He took care of us. Boys and girls, never forget the fidelity of Yahweh. He's not like your friend's gods that never answer. He's not like the gods of the nations. He's the God of history who historically delivered us. The reason we're here now, boys and girls, they could say, is because our God is the living God, the faithful God. And we're going to remember that even when we're tent side. 
Leviticus 23, verse 42, you shall dwell in booths or tents for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. Again, brought them out of the land of Egypt. Read redemption, 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 redemption. Drama of redemption. All of this is happening. I am the Lord your God. I'm yours. There's personal connection there. This is uh, not a cold relationship. It's a genuine relationship. And I am the Lord your God. That means I'm unlike all of those other gods. Remember, 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 remember. And the festival allows you to remember that great deliverance, commemorating the great deliverance, the protection, the provision, all of those things in the wilderness wanderings. Exodus 23, Numbers 29, Deuteronomy 16, the Lord had done it. I brought them out of the land of Egypt. How does this relate to Jesus? One important text in John chapter 7 is John chapter 7, verse 37, where it says, On the last day of the feast, that's the feast we're talking about, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He's taking center stage during the feast. I'm the one. In John chapter 6, if we dare go back there, when you're talking about the bread in the wilderness and the provision that was made by Moses. You know, they can't get my winking on the audio. The provision that was made by Moses. And Jesus makes it clear, it wasn't Moses. It was God that did this. And then He says what? I am the bread of life. You take from me. You eat from me. In other words, you embrace me. It's an image of belief. It's, an, it's, a, it's a graphic image of a embracing by faith. And you come to me to drink and, and you will never hunger again. And you will never thirst again. Yeah, God provided in the wilderness. Extraordinarily, He provided in the wilderness. Ultimately, He provided through Christ with an anticipation of the ultimate provision, you'll never thirst again. Now again, if I'm an unbelieving, quote-unquote Bible scholar, who doesn't believe in things like inerrancy and inspiration, I don't believe in providence, I don't believe in supernatural, this can't be. This just can't be. But most of us in this room aren't those kinds of people. If you are, you're welcome here. Glad you're here. Most of us aren't those kinds of people. So maybe we need a little challenge to not read our Bibles like those kinds of people. See, sometimes we're forced to read our Bibles like those kinds of people because we're trying to defend something about Christianity to those kinds of people. But they have a different worldview. They, they're anti-supernaturalists. They're naturalists. 
I'm starting with an understanding that says God is eternal and all-knowing and has an eternal plan of redemption that reaches back into eternity past pre-Genesis 1.1. And so I'm not ashamed at all to say, I see connections. I see the fingerprints of God all over this working. And it's part of one grand unfolding, got to use the word again, drama has a plot line with subplots all complementing the ultimate plot, centering ultimately on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And let's look at one more. One more? Is that right? Let's look at one more. Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement, if you have a Bible, you can go to Leviticus chapter 16. We'll at least sample some verses from Day of Atonement. Oh, there are so many. All right, now that you've found Leviticus, I'm not going to let you go there. Um, David Atonement is Yom Kippur, right? The thing that comes up on your calendar and you go, what is that on my calendar? Um, as a Gentile? Day of Atonement. Significant day. If you know something about that day, you know a lot about how things work in your Bible. It's in Leviticus 16. We're not going to read the 34 verses in Leviticus 16. And um, I hate to cut you short. You can get your money back at the door if you'd like to do that. Um, but we're just going to go ahead and jump to the punchline and go to Hebrews chapter 9. And so if you want to go to Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 7, uh, for the sake of time, we're going to do that. You've got that day when the priest, the priest has to go and make sacrifice and keep making sacrifice and it happens year after year and there's plenty to see there. I guess I'll stop apologizing for not reading it. But it's for his cleansing because he's a sinner. It's for the people's cleansing because they're sinners. Again, Leviticus 16 but then when we fast forward and we see the, or the fulfillment of what was anticipated in that sacrificial system, in Hebrews chapter 9, we read these words starting in the 24th verse. For Christ has entered, verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places, this is Day of Atonement talk, made with hands, which are copies, okay, so those are copies of the true things, Referring to that Old Testament Day of Atonement. But into heaven itself is what Christ has done. He's gone into heaven itself. So we're arguing from the lesser to the greater. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That's like, that's priest talk. High priest talk. Verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place. Every year it says with blood, not his own. And by the way, just put your finger there for a second. If you have to go do it every year, it's not final and it's not finished, right? It's, 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 it's got to keep happening. 
So there, there's something about it that's lacking. Verse 26 says, For then we would have had to suffer repeatedly, then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. He's, he's arguing into almost ridiculousness. But as it is, contrast, he has appeared once for all. Notice the finality. Notice the climax. The, the exclamation, once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And you just go, bam! You know? Done! There's the, the final slamming of the door in all the best senses. It's complete. It's done. It's taken care of. He is sufficient. All of that anticipation is for Christ, our ultimate high priest, who's going to make final atonement. And then maybe go back to chapter 7, verse 22. Still talking about the, the, the same idea, the same reality, but there's some emphasis on his intercessor, intercessory work. Verse 22 says, This makes Jesus the guarantor. A couple of weeks ago here at Omaha Bible Church on Sunday morning, we talked about our surety. To use that great old English word. Our surety. The one who is our guarantor. The one who makes it sure. Our confidence. Our security. This makes Jesus the surety. Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Maybe put your finger there just for one more second and realize, just to take us back to Hebrews for a moment, it's interesting, even in the Old Testament, it talks about a new covenant. Well, if you're going to have a new covenant, that assumes there needs to be a new covenant. That assumes that the old covenant system is never intended to go on forever because there's going to be a new covenant that's going to replace the old covenant. So even built in the Old Testament framework is a plan to have it come to an end. There is a built-in plan for it to come to an end, and it's in anticipation of something greater, and we're seeing that it's Christ. All along it's Christ. But it wasn't like you have the whole Old Testament, and it's assuming to go on forever, and then all of a sudden, plan B, Jesus. No. Even in the Old, it's talking about the New there needs to be the new. There needs to, to, to be a, a closing and an ending, a fulfillment of this. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number. And you say, in one sense, we go, oh, that's right. There are many. That's good. That's important. We've got a lot. You guys don't have a lot. Well, the author of Hebrews seems to even be using that kind of deliberate, uh, maybe in a good sense, sanctified taunting. It's not good, it's not helpful. There were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. It's not a good thing to have many. It's just proof that it's not, one of, it's not going to be the ultimate solution. It's, it's not a good thing in an ultimate sense. Then we keep going. Verse 24, But He holds His priesthood, talking about Jesus, permanently, because He continues Forever. Ah, yeah, that, that, that's the Christ worthy of our worship. Verse 25, consequently. Notice this, this is awesome. He is able, Jesus is able to save 
to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. So here we even have the, 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 the atoning work of Jesus tied to His intercessory work. And as sure as His atoning sacrifice is once and for all, He always lives as a resurrected priest. And He always lives to do nothing. No, He always lives to make intercession. We could have some good and important and engaging conversations about the effectual nature of the atoning work of Christ too. Because He intercedes, always intercedes for those He dies for. It's extraordinary. He always lives to make intercession for them. This is ultimate day of atonement kind of thing. Verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. What's a downer about the Old Testament provided you don't think that that's how it ends? It's not a downer at all. It's all in anticipation. It's all leading up towards setting a great platform for Him. And we see how it's unfolding. And we see how it's unfolding over time. And we see clearer and clearer how Christ is at the center of the whole thing. It's really quite extraordinary. We're not going to do it tonight, but we can talk about other holidays. We can talk about other feasts. We can talk about the great marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm more prepared to anticipate the marriage supper of the Lamb, even based upon this little study we've done. Just a little sampling of those holidays and feasts and celebrations, and they're great, and we're celebrating the fidelity of Yahweh that He provides, He takes care of. He's a redeeming God. He's a delivering God. And we can read the book of Revelation at the end there. We're looking forward to the marriage supper, the marriage feast where we will celebrate, and we will celebrate His great faithfulness, not because we've done it, but because He's done it, and He's delivered His people. It is His marriage supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Makes me think about, it's the Lord's Passover. He did it. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. He's the one who's done it. We benefit, and we're guests, and we rejoice. Makes me think about the Lord's Supper as well. Passover time. And you do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. All in anticipation of Him being the one. Isn't it great? I hope we can have some good conversations about these things. Maybe even tonight. So much to learn. I feel like I know about this much. I feel like I just moved to another country. And uh, you know, I've sat down for about an hour with some people who speak really good English. And who can help me just start to understand a little bit about their culture. So I can maybe not be too offensive in the things I say. But I'm there as their guest. And I'm excited about holidays coming up. Because maybe I can understand them better. Kind of feel like that. But this is a whole different kind of level. 
Lots to learn, lots to think about. Well, let's pray and then we'll move on to some other things. Father, thank you so much and thank you for the fact that the that those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb are considered blessed. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're grateful for your kind invitation that you give to us. And we're grateful that we can be welcomed guests because of the shed blood of the Lamb. And we are thankful for the richness of your word. Um, We're thankful that we're able to understand its richness even better as time goes on. Help us to keep learning and, and, and knowing more and more, but help us to also be the kinds of people who learn and it translates into, into worship. That we would be singing the hallelujahs to you, acknowledging that you are the Lord God Almighty who is mighty to save. Make us those kinds of people according to your grace. This has been a good day. We're thankful for it. We're thankful that you've given it to us. Help us to love each other and to express our gratitude to you, not just in what we say privately to you, but also and even in the way we conduct ourselves uh, with one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, we are going to have some dessert in just a little while. Cake is looking good, ladies. Nicely done, nicely done. Um, I want the piece on the left toward the front. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we are going to have a good time hanging out with Rob and Amanda. Uh, this is going to be our, our formal and official goodbye. This morning was the commissioning. And uh, I do want you to encourage them and uh, tell them that you love them. Tell them that you'll pray for them and then pray for them as they prepare to go to Imperial, Nebraska um, for pastoral ministry there for Rob. So grateful. I think Rob just finished his seven-year anniversary here at OBC. Seven years on staff here. Is that right? And... Uh, Super thankful for him. Um, we'll have some of these stories offline, but um, while we're all together, I'll at least tell one because I have the microphone, so I get to. Um, I first met Rob, uh, and he was here on a Sunday night, and he had lots of good things to say and good questions. And how long ago? Eight years ago, maybe? It's probably a freezing cold night like this. And uh, he seemed like a good Christian guy, trying to get to know him, wonder what brought him here. And he wasn't really showing all of his cards. It's kind of like, you know, what's the deal? And what's with this guy? And maybe he came a couple other times. And, you know, before you know it, he, well, what do you do? You know, are you married? Where's your wife? And what's the deal with this guy? We're starting to talk about him because that's what we do. Um, no. Um, <laughs> what's the deal with this guy? Do you have a job? Well, yeah. What do you do? Uh, I'm a pastor. <laughs> so <laughs> he was, a, were you a pastoral intern? You're a pastor. Yeah, he, he, he was a student ministries pastor at another church. I won't name the big white church on Dodge Street. But anyway, um, so why, why are you coming here? And well, I want Bible teaching. Um, so again, we won't mention names to protect the guilty. But anyway, he, he's like, I want, I want expository preaching. And here's this guy. We're all drawn to him. Like this, we like to hang out with this guy. Next thing you know, having lunch, hanging out, other pastors here, getting to know him and other people. And, and his wife starts coming too. And she happens to be employed elsewhere also, perhaps by a church of the same name that I won't mention. And so they're having a hard time coming on Sunday mornings and, and all this is going on. See, it is a good story, isn't it? 
And so, and so we, you know, it's like, whoa, what, how, what's the deal here? And so just keep giving Rob more to read and talk about, and dialogue back and forth. And then the next thing you know, uh, a friend of mine in another state is like, tell me, who's that guy again? And uh, give me his phone number. I'm going to hire him. And uh, in, in all seriousness, and I called Rob, and, hey, you know what, you want to go there? And, and, and Rob's like, no, I don't want to go there. By then, you, you guys quit your jobs. Amanda, were you working for a cemetery? Yeah? See? Anyway, uh, so yeah, Rob's got a regular job, different job outside the church, and they're serving here at the church then at the time. And I'm like, you need to go to this church. It's a great church, good friend of mine, be a great place to do ministry. And Rob basically humbly said, well, Amanda and I um, love Omaha Bible Church. We love to be at Omaha Bible Church, and so that's what we're going to do. Uh, and all along, it's like, you know, we don't have any positions for you. There's no place for you on the staff. Sorry, sorry, sorry. He said, we're here to be serving at the church. And it was like, hang up the phone, and the, ultimate, the immediate conclusion is what? We need to hire him. <laughs> He's either totally nuts... <laughs> Or, or he's really committed to what we're doing here, and I think it was the latter. And seven years later, we really think it was the latter. So I love Rob Clay. I love his wife, Amanda, and their family. Super thankful for them. Thankful for the way the Lord has used them here. Uh, I know so many of you feel the same way, and we want them to go encouraged um, by what's going on. I'm so thankful they are going. Uh, a couple things we want to give to you, Rob. Um, if I can bend down. Uh, you can't see it from here, um, but... You've seen this picture before. This is the picture. It's a chronic. Is the guy who painted. Uh, sometimes people say the Reformation couldn't have happened without um, the artist. And it wasn't just Luther. It was his artist friend named Chronic. I have his book, a book about him down here. That's not for you. Um, just so you know. Anybody else who wants to learn a little bit about uh, what this guy did during the time of the Reformation, really helping Luther. And so he painted this. This is a print. And I'll leave it up here. I left the cover on it so it doesn't look quite as nice. But you can look at it. It's fascinating. Um, but it's a great picture of Luther preaching. And this is the way he depicted Luther's ministry. Luther preaching. And you've got the people over here. And you can read about the history and who these people are in his life. But you've got the people here. And what he's saying is, whenever Luther preached to the people, he knew nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He had one message. And uh, I just think it's a great, great reminder to you, Rob, of what your whole ministry really should be about. I know it's been about that, but just a great reminder that we're ultimately about one thing. It's about preaching Christ crucified. Uh, that's what Paul said. And so we want to give you this uh, on behalf of the church, uh, something you can hang in your office. Uh, and then we also um, got you uh, Warfield's works. I know you have some of them, I think, uh, the 10-volume set. I just picked up one of them here. B.B. Warfield was a Princeton theologian. Rob knows this. This is for everybody else's benefit, in case you don't know. Um, Mid-1800s, um, one of the most capable, able, uh, ablest defenders of Christianity during that time against all of the attacks of, of higher critical thought and rationalism um, and B.B. Warfield really was a good gift from Christ to the church to help protect the church as an academic. Uh, to this day, he probably still has the best book in print on um, the inspiration and authority of Scripture. And so um, the pastors here, Rob, have written in seven of the volumes. 
Um, the other three are for your children to ride in, um, if you'd like that. <laughs> and uh, just some things that would express our gratitude to you. Um, and I know you like Warfield, and he's just a good example and a good friend. Uh, and I'll tell you one more thing. Uh, if nothing else, Rob, your wife will think it's a good-looking set for somewhere in the house that can be visible. So Molly won't let me put very many sets on display, but she allows Warfield to be out in the living room sometimes. It's either Warfield or Spurgeon. So um, just a little decorating tip uh, for, for you. Uh, <laughs> with all of that said, um, let's let Robbie and Amanda go up to the line, grab something to drink, something to eat, and then the rest of us can follow them. But let's let them get something and maybe find a place to sit. And uh, let's just have a great time of encouragement together, okay? All right, great. I'll pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for a time of fun and fellowship. Thank you for Robbie and Amanda and for their dear children. And thank you for what you've done in their lives. Uh, thank you that his, his hope is not in himself. Um, thank you that his hope is in Christ. Uh, help him to, to love the people of God uh, enough to point them to Christ again and again and not to himself. Uh, thank you for your, your loyalty uh, as Yahweh, this great covenant-keeping God that we've been learning about. Um, may this be a time of rejoicing together. In Jesus' name, amen.